like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Normally, I don't like to jump in in the middle of a sentence, but that's what we're going to do this morning in verse 7. And that's what we did last week as well. In fact, we're still jumping into the same sentence. Verses 3 to 14 form the longest sentence in the Bible. It's 202 words long. And Paul kind of loses track of grammar and syntax as he's listing for us the riches that are ours in Christ and as he's interjecting praises to God. And I'm sure even the English teachers among us can't be too distracted because he is counting our blessings and they just go on and on. And we have been highlighting ten riches that are ours in Christ. The first is in verse 3. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The next two are in verse 4. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And he made us holy and blameless before him. The fourth is in verse 5. We have been adopted as sons. And the fifth, where we want to pick up this morning, is in verse 7, where it says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Now, the word redemption was a word that was used of slaves. It was a common word in the first century because slavery was a major business. There were at least six million slaves in the Roman Empire. And so it was a common thing to see slave auctions. And this word redemption means to set someone free from bondage by paying their ransom. If you wanted to set free a family member or a friend who had become a slave you had to pay the price that was on his head and then you set him free. That was redemption. And Paul says, in Christ, we have redemption. Now, why do we need redemption? Well, because we are born into bondage. We are born as captives. And what are we slaves of? Well, Paul states it very clearly in Romans 6, 17. He says, you were slaves of sin. And in Romans chapter 7 and verse 14, he makes it personal by saying, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And so sin was our captor. Sin was our slave master. Now, most of us didn't know that. If you came up and asked us, we would say, I'm free. I'm doing my thing. I'm doing whatever I want. But what is sin? Sin is doing whatever you want. Sin is selfishness. So what we called freedom was actually bondage. And it becomes clear with the addictions that sin ultimately leads to. We see addictions in drugs, alcohol, pornography, lying, stealing. We see someone get to the point where they say, I want to stop, but I can't. And then we start to see the chains of sin. And even though you can't see the chains, every one of us is born into slavery to sin. And in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, we're told that Satan has a course of sinful disobedience that he has laid out in this world, and we all walked in it. We said, yes, sir, master, and we followed. We were all slaves of sin. Now, what's the price that's on our head? What is it that will free us from sin? Well, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin 
is death. And Ezekiel 18.4 says, The soul who sins will die. Redemption is no light matter. We had a huge price tag on our head. You could gather all the riches of this world and you could never pay the debt that we owed. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life. Perishable things like silver and gold could never pay the debt to set you free. And so what is it that paid the debt to set us free? Well, look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. You know, blood is never pleasant. It's sticky and it's messy and it's repulsive when we see it spilt somewhere. You see a stain, you say, ooh, it's blood. And some people can't even stand the sight of it. Uh, some people get woozy. Some people faint. Uh, my brother does that. Is Norm here? If you get cut, if you get cut, don't go show Norm. You'll have to carry him out. And yet the New Testament over and over again talks about the blood of Christ. In fact, he said we were to take a cup and continually remember his blood. Now, why such an emphasis on the blood of Christ? Well, I think in this passage it reminds us something about the price that had to be paid. Number one, it reminds us that it was costly. When somebody somebody dies and you see blood, what does that tell you? There was suffering involved. That was a cruel death. And when Jesus died on the cross, we're told that his back was torn open with a scourge, that a crown of thorns was pounded into his head, that nails were driven through his hands and his feet, and a spear was thrust into his side. As we envision the cross, there was blood everywhere flowing down. And that reminds us that Jesus' death was costly. He didn't come into this world and die of old age. He suffered and he died for us. He shed his blood and it was a costly thing. Second thing it reminds us of is that it was substitutionary. To the Jewish mind, when he heard or saw blood, he thought of a sacrifice because there were continual sacrifices in the Jewish economy. And he knew that a sacrifice was when someone died in the place of another. A sacrifice was substitutionary. And when Jesus died, he died as our substitute. He died in our place. But when we think about that, I want you to understand that it wasn't just symbolic. It wasn't just book work that God did. He didn't just do some spiritual accounting. Because listen to this verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus Christ became sin on the cross of Calvary. And if you want to understand a little bit about the cost, think about this. When Jesus became what we are, God put him to death because that's what we deserve. But the beautiful thing is that we will never have to taste that death ourselves because Jesus already did 
as our substitute. And so it was costly. It was substitutionary. The third thing we can, we can see from this is that it was sufficient. Who did Jesus make the payment to? You say, well, I guess he made it to the devil. No. The devil is a slave to sin just like we are. Who did he make the payment to? Jesus made the payment to the Father because God's righteous nature demands that sin be paid for. And God had made it clear throughout the Old Testament that the price of sin was blood. God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The continual sacrifices in the temple were for the blood to come before him. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And on the day of atonement, when the sacrifice bull was made, they put the blood into a basin and the high priest carried it into the holy of holy places and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat in a symbolic way saying that God is appeased by the blood. But in Hebrews 10.4 we read, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All the blood that was shed in the Old Testament economy didn't erase one sin. It was all symbolic of the Lamb of God who was to come. And that's why Jesus, of Jesus, it says in Hebrews 9.12, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What the blood of bulls and goats could never do, Jesus did by his own blood. And God is satisfied. Jesus' blood was sufficient. And that's why Hebrews 2.13 says, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 10.19 says, We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And Revelation 1.5 says, To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. It was sufficient. So the price to set us free from sin was his blood, reminding us that it was costly, it was substitutionary, and it was sufficient. You can write across the pages of your Bible, paid in full, because that's the sacrifice of Christ. Now before we leave this point, if sin was our slave master and we have been set free, what is the implication? How should we express our freedom? Well, it seems obvious. We should express our freedom by no longer obeying sin. See, we often think freedom is doing whatever I want to do. Freedom is sinning all I want to sin. You see, that's slavery. That's the lie of Satan. Freedom is being able to say no to sin. And freedom is being able to say yes to God. I couldn't do that before I was a Christian. Now, as a Christian, having been redeemed, I have the freedom to follow my Lord. We have redemption. Sixth deposit that he's made in your bank book is in verse 7 also. It's forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness. Wow. I don't think we appreciate forgiveness fully because we tend to understand forgiveness by the way we forgive. And we often forgive half-hearted. We say, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. I'm going to forgive you, but see if I ever speak to you again. 
But when God forgives, He forgives like only God can forgive. October 4th was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, the high priest took two goats and he cast lots. And the loser he took and he sacrificed. And he took the blood inside the Holy of Holy Places and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And then he came back to that second goat and he put his hands on his head and he confessed over that goat the sins of the people of Israel. And then they took that goat out into the wilderness and they let it go never to return again. And that was the picture God was painting of his forgiveness, that it's taken away and it's never brought back. In Psalm 103, 12, he says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Well, if you ask me which way is east and which way is west, I'll tell you I don't know. But if I figure it out, I'll say that way is east and that way is west. But you know, as far as I travel east, I never get west. In fact, I never get any further east. Because if I go 5,000 miles east and you ask me which way is east and which way is west, I'm still pointing in two different directions. And that's the way our sin is. It never comes back. In Isaiah 44, 22, the Lord says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud. In Micah 7, 19, he says, I have cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And in Jeremiah 31, 34, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Wow. Say, God, you remember that sin I committed, that awful one I committed a couple years ago? What does God say? No. I don't remember. I don't understand how an infinite God can forget something. But he has chosen not to remember our sins. And that's an exciting truth. And the frustrating thing is that I run into a lot of Christians who are walking around carrying big burdens of guilt. Why is that? We choose to remember something that God doesn't remember. And we want to bring it up all the time. We want to struggle with it. And we want to feel the guilt of it. You say, yeah, but it, it happened after I was a Christian. But it's funny how we think. We, we think in terms of time. We think God can handle the things in the past, but he can't handle the things in the future. He can't handle the present and the future. But God doesn't think that way. He's an eternal God. And when was forgiveness paid for? It was paid for at the cross. And how many of your sins were future at the cross? All of them. You say, yeah, but you don't know what I did. God could never forgive this. You know what you're doing when you say that? You are insulting God. When you say, I've committed a sin that God can't forgive, you are saying, my sin is greater than God's ability to forgive. You are belittling God. He has forgiven you. And if you don't understand that, take another look at the cross of Calvary and see what it cost again. He has forgiven all of your sins. In fact, did you know as a Christian, I am never told in Scripture to ask for forgiveness? You know why? Because I've already got it. And in 1 John 1, 9, it says we are to come to God and do what? Confess our sins. What's the word confess mean? It's, it means to say the same thing. So I come to God and I say the same thing about my sin that he says about it. I don't have to come to God and say, please forgive me. 
Just one more time, please. I don't have to do that. I come and say, God, this is sin. I, t- I bring it out of the darkness and I bring it into the light and I confess it to him. And guess what? I'm forgiven. Because that's a given. Because he's already forgiven me. When the boys were little and they do something wrong, Temple would always say, do you want to spank them or shall I? And I would say, you do it. And I always remember that. I would sit out in the living room and I would see them go into the bedroom together and this screaming kid, you know, uh, saying, please don't, I didn't do it, you know. And they'd go into the bedroom and I would hear this bang, bang, bang. I mean, she spanked a lot louder and harder than I did. But bang, 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 and this screaming. And then maybe a minute would pass and out they would come from the bedroom It was always the same picture. Their arms were wrapped around her in a big hug. When we come to confess our sins to our Father, that's our relationship. I had a teacher who used to tell me, whenever you confess your sins, don't leave without getting your hug. We come to the Father. He's already forgiven us in Christ. We come to make that relationship right, and as we do, we need to get our hug so that the relationship is back where it ought to be. You say, well, how could God redeem us and forgive us? Well, look at the end of verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. What does that mean? Well, you know, if you went to a multimillionaire and you asked him to make a donation to a worthy cause and he wrote you a check for $25, he would be giving you out of his riches. But if you asked him for that donation and he wrote you a check and he signed it and he left it blank and he said, whatever you need, you fill it in. That would be according to his riches. God has blessed us by giving us according to the riches of his grace. And not only that, but look at the first phrase of verse 8, which he has lavished upon us. How big is God's grace? It's infinite. And He has given us according to that grace, and not only that, but He has lavished it upon us. That's why we have redemption, and that's why we have forgiveness. Well, the seventh deposit He's made in your bank book is at the end of verse 8 through verse 10. It says, In all wisdom and insight He made known to us the mystery of His will. Now, God could have done all this for us and not told us. If he did, we would have it, but we'd have no assurance about it. But God has chosen to tell us these things so that we know them, but he doesn't stop there. This verse tells me he has made known to us the mystery of his will. You say, well, what is the mystery of his will? Look at verse 9 again. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him. The mystery of his will is what God has purposed to do in Christ. You say, well, what is that? Turn over to chapter 3 and verse 4. We're not going to go into this in much detail today because we're going to get into it in chapter 3 where he talks more about this mystery. But look at verse 4. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. It's something that the Old Testament saints didn't know. 
You say, well, what is it? Verse 6, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is the mystery? What is God's purpose through Christ? It is to bring together Jew and Gentile into one body in unity. And that is a theme throughout the book of Ephesians, that unity in the body of Christ, that oneness that we have. But come back to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at verse 10 because he doesn't stop there. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time. That's looking into the future. And he says, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. What's he saying? Not only is the church brought together in unity today in Christ, but in a future day, everything is going to be summed up in him. All history finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And he is going to be the center, not only of his kingdom one day, but of a new heaven and a new earth, and everything will center around him. And that's why it says at the end of verse 10, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. Revelation chapter 5 gives us a preview of that. We see men singing songs of praise to Christ. And they're met by myriads of angels, and they're all singing the same song. And what is the song? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. He's going to be the sinner. He's going to sum everything up in that day. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 says that in a future day, every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those who reject him and go into judgment will in that day bow the knee and confess that he is Lord. He will be the center of all. And God has made that known to us. We know where history is going. We know what God is doing in this world, and we know what's coming in the future. Now, the wisest men in this world don't understand that. Most people would agree with Shakespeare's Macbeth when he described history as a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's most people's view of history. But we know what the wisest men in this world don't know. We know what the prophets in the Old Testament didn't know. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says, We know what angels long to look into. God has revealed to us the mystery of his will. Eighth deposit in your bank book, verse 11 we have obtained an inheritance. Now, some of your translations will read a little differently there because the Greek verb here is in the passive and it can be translated two different ways. It can be translated, we were made an inheritance, meaning that we are Christ's inheritance. And if you take it that way, it's true. We are Christ's Inheritance. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, we read Jesus saying, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Did you realize that you are a love gift from the Father to the Son? You are Christ's inheritance. You say, well, he sure isn't getting much. Well, that's why this first chapter tells us he is changing us to be holy and blameless before him. We are the bride who will be presented before him without spot or wrinkle. We are his inheritance. Malachi 3.17, God says, And they will be mine on the day that I prepare my own possession. It is true that we are his inheritance. But we can also take this phrase to read, We have received an inheritance. 
In other words, the inheritance is ours. Let me show you a verse that ties this together. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 3.21. Last phrase of that verse says, For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all belongs to you. Next phrase, verse 23, and you belong to Christ. You inherit everything and Christ inherits you. And so both of these statements are true. We are Christ's inheritance and we have an inheritance. But as you come back to Ephesians chapter 1, it seems to me that the second statement is the correct one in this context because he's listing the blessings that are ours in Christ. And it seems that what he's saying here is that we have an inheritance. That's the same inheritance talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 when it says we have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You say, well, would it be too selfish to ask, what is my inheritance? Well, let me help you with two ideas. You know, when Jesus left, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I look at it this way. If he created the heavens and the earth in six days, he went to create a place for us, and he's been gone over 1,900 years, then I figure that must be good. We will inherit what he has spent all this time preparing for us. Well, let me show, you to, show it to you another way. Romans 8, 17 says we are joint heirs with Christ. What does that mean? That means that whatever he inherits, we inherit. And what does Christ inherit? Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 says he is the heir of all things. So whatever Christ inherits, I inherit because I'm a joint heir with him. He is the heir of all things, so what is my inheritance? Everything. Pretty exciting. Next deposit he makes in our bank book. The ninth is in verse 13. He says at the end of that verse, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now what was a seal? In that day, rulers and dignitaries had a special ring, and on that ring was their seal. And they would melt wax on on an official document or whatever they wanted to put their seal on, and then they would press that signet ring into the wax, and that was their seal. Primarily, it spoke of two things. Number one, it spoke of authority and authenticity. If you saw a document and it had the seal of the king on it, it was an official document. I went down to the bank the other day to cash a check to my daughter uh, from her grandpa, $25. So I had her write her name on the back of the check, Lindsay, and it took most of the back of the check. So I went down to the bank and I handed them the check. And they said, sorry, we can't cash this check the way it is because uh, she has no account. She's no account, they said. And uh, so I had to sign my name under her name to give validity to her check. And then I kept the money. Of course. 
God has sealed us with his spirit. We're told in verse 3 that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Where are they? They're in the heavenly places. How do we go up to the window and cash our checks? We don't cash our checks in our own name because we don't have a whole lot of authority. But we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And it gives us access to cash all these riches that are ours because they're in Christ. Then there's a second idea behind sealing, and that is the idea of security. Remember in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel was told, don't pray or you'll get into a lot of trouble. And he prayed anyway, and he got into a lot of trouble. He ended up in the lion's den. And here's a verse we read in Daniel 6, 17. Just listen to it. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of the nobles so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. It's good, isn't it? It was sealed so that nothing could be changed. No one could tamper with that stone without facing the wrath of the king. When Jesus' body was laid into the tomb, they put the stone in front of it and they sealed it with the seal of the Roman government. What were they saying? You can't tamper with this stone or else you're going to face the wrath of the Roman government. Of course, the only one who could tamper with that stone was someone who was greater than the Roman government and that's who came along and moved it. When you became a Christian, the Spirit of God came inside of you and He sealed you. What does that say? Security. God is saying nobody can tamper with him. No one can tamper with her unless you're greater than God. And no one is. Tenth deposit in our bank book is in verse 14. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. We have been redeemed, but there's a certain part of our redemption that's still future. In fact, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 23, it says we still await the redemption of our bodies. We are still not in heaven yet, and so there are some of these riches that are yet future. Our inheritance is future. You say, well, how do I know I'm going to get these things? How do I know that these promises are sure? Well, the promise is validated in verse 14 because he says he has given us the Spirit as a pledge. What is a pledge? A pledge is a down payment. You go in to buy a house or buy a car, you go in and you put down a down payment to say, I'm going to come through with the rest of the money. Only in our case, it's usually 10%. God says, I want you to be sure that you're going to get what I promised, so I'm going to give you a down payment. What is the down payment? The down payment is His Spirit. I would say that's more than 10%. God has given us Himself to verify that he's going to come through with the rest. Well, there are your riches in one sentence. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. He chose us before the foundation of the world. We are holy and blameless, adopted as sons. We have redemption, forgiveness. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. We have an inheritance. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is given as a down payment. You say, well, how did I get all of that? How did I come into Christ to experience all these riches? Well, the answer is right here in verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. What did you do? You listened 
to the good news of Jesus Christ, and you believed. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You simply believed. And that's why the end of verse 14 tells us that it's all to the praise of His glory.